Don't irritate him. Yeah, I can do that. Poor <laughs> um, All right, so I'm going to talk about medical error. This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I have committed plenty of them. Um, and we'll get into it. I'm just going to start with, I think, just no more preamble. I'm just going to talk about a case. This case is, this is a real case. You know, it happened when I was an intern. And I was like super in, intern guy, you know. So this guy, this guy was like 55 years old. Was. Um, 55 years old. He recently had chemotherapy and he had some bizarre recurrent sarcoma. And I was on this solid, uh, this like ox service. And so this guy went to ox clinic um, where he was found to be a bit altered. They admitted him directly to the floor um, for evaluation. I was the intern. I got a call from the attending over in the clinic saying I'm sending Mr. So-and-so over. He's altered. You know, he had chemo 10 days ago. We don't know what's going on, but he needs to be admitted and dealt with. So I saw him immediately on arrival. Like I think I was in his room before he got there, and I saw the guy. Clearly, he was delirious. His vital signs were a bit abnormal. I think he was a febrile, but yeah, his heart rate was like um, 120. He didn't look right. wasn't wasn't much uh, wasn't much question about that. His wife was there. We we're kind of joking around because he's acting so bizarrely. Like he, like he would have woken up in the middle of the night, tried to you know strangle their cat or something bizarre. Um, and his wife thought it was actually kind of funny, just because he's normally like this, you know, lawyer type, and he was a uh, well. Kempt and it was unusual for him to act like a crazy person. So I didn't know what was wrong with him, but you know, chemotherapy 10 days ago stood to reason that he was probably septic, his white count was probably really low, and that he was septic. So I wrote an order for antibiotics, I wrote an order for some fluids, and uh, my plan was to reassess him. And this was like the perfect time of the day for everybody to be evaluated. It was like, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning or something. It was really the perfect time to be transferred to some to some floor. Um, it was interesting because he hadn't even been registered because I saw him so quickly. So I, I took his order sheet. We have these like antibiotic order forms because, you know, periodically infectious disease services try to regulate like every antibiotic that's ever, you know, that's, that's prescribed. So I took this antibiotic order form and I took it to the pharmacy that's on the same floor as this oncology service, like literally like 20 feet away. So I took it over there and I'm like, the guy's not registered yet because he was a direct admit from the clinic, came right up. I wrote his name in, I gave it to them. And I said, you guys will take care of it? They said, yep, no problem. So um, I went along my very you know, way and uh, planned on reassessing him in a few hours. And you know, it's no surprise what happens next. So <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't know if that's Photoshopped or not. I'm not sure. Some, I, I, know, I, I have given this talk at, versions of it at other you know conferences and and there are people that have, have claimed to know exactly what this is that it was some airliner from like 20 years ago or something but I'm not sure I couldn't I cannot independently verify that this is a real thing so um, what happened was I saw the guy and everything looked cool like at, like maybe noon you know he had a, a line in was resting comfortably his wife's like reading the papers on his great couple hours later, maybe about 4 o'clock towards the end of the day, I'm going back to check on them. By now, his white count had come back at 0, 0.00 and all that stuff. But, you know, he had already been written for his imipenem or whatever the, the drug du jour was at that time. And so I go back again about 4, sort of getting close to the end of my, my day, check on all the, the guys that had been admitted. And he's sitting there with a Band-Aid in his endocubital fossa, a bag of something hanging from an IV pole near him, and his mouth is like, he's like this. And I'm like, that doesn't look good. So I walk in, and of course, the bag that's hanging from there is both IV fluids and imipenem, um, completely full, you know, which is probably not ideal for the situation. And, and I'm like, what is going on here? You know, everything looks so under control. 
and you know, an hour and a half after I saw him, and now all health, it, now it look, the guy looks bad. Now he's not funny delirious. He's coma delirious, you know, coma. So I, you know, I go to the Chargers. I'm like, what the hell is happening here? What happened? You know, and she's like, I have no idea, no idea. And so they go, and she finds the actual nurse. And it was like, you know, it was one of her first days. She was like, it's this training nurse. Actually, she was supposed to be supervised. And the guy's IV had come out, um, you know, hours ago. And um, she had been trying to get it back in, but she wasn't able to. And I guess she was timid or something, but she hadn't, re you know, kicked it up the chain with the appropriate level of urgency. Um, and so the dude has been sitting there without his antibiotics and his IV fluids and things like that. So. You know, I'm like, oh God, give me a central line and all these kinds of things. We'll put it in right now and we'll start squeezing in the antibiotics, et cetera. Um, the charge nurse starts his line in like three seconds, right? And puts the fluids in and, you know, and the antibiotics start going in. I'm like, oh, this is very, very bad. And I start calling people to make arrangements to transfer to the unit at this point. Um, and then, you know, so I'm on the phone and then literally it's like 45 minutes later, there's a, you know, code blue to his room. and. You know, I walk into the room and there's my the code blue team and they're like squeezing the independent bag in as though you know that's going to help the guy, but <laughs> alas, it, it didn't. It didn't help him one bit, and he died, and that wasn't good. Um, so the whole story is exacerbated with one particular problem, which is that um, the attending on at the time was this fellow who's actually quite famous. He's the 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 oncologist who developed Herceptin, you know, who discovered the Herceptin antibody and everything, and uh, Dennis Slayman. And he is like the sort of preeminent scholar at UCLA where, where this occurred. And this was not good. He never attended on wards, like one week a year at the most. And most of the times our ward rounds were interrupted by uh, calls from the White House because he was like the, the chairman of the president's can breast cancer committee or something, and they were going unraveling their whole national plans. This is like not the guy to piss off, you know, for doing some intern mistake of not following up on, on antibiotics, et cetera. So I was, I was, you know, proverbializing the bricks and, um, and worried about this because, you know, I didn't know I was going to be in an emergency position. Back then, I could have been an oncologist. This would have ended that. Um, so, you know, so I was sitting there and I, I went home. You know, he had long gone. It was like 6 o'clock at night now or something like that. He had long gone. And I was sitting there thinking, how am I going to sell this one in the morning? You know, I got to say something. We're gonna, there's going to be rounds. I get, we're going to talk about it, and I'm just going to get crushed. And you know, I'm an intern. I'm a good intern. I just have to, you know, say it's my bad and, and just do that, I guess. But you know, I started to think about who's to blame from all this stuff. Is it me? Of course. You know, I'm the lowest lying fruit, so it's easy to to blame me. The pharmacy for not like following up somehow. Nah, probably not the nurse. Well, she had some culpability. In, in this whole thing because she didn't recognize that he wasn't getting his antibiotics, but you know, IVs blow, things happen. Um, my attending, I mean, I'm just a bonehead intern. Why are you leaving me alone in the, you know, in the middle of the day? That's, your, that's gotta be on him a little bit. You go through all of this stuff and you start to realize that there are lots and lots of little points where things just didn't go quite right. And ultimately I felt at the end of the, you know, my contemplation of this that I probably could have sold out any number of these people and deflected it away from myself. But that didn't seem to be the right thing. So what I decided to do is go in the morning on rounds and have this, and just, just lay it out there like minute by minute what happened and just let the chips fall where they may. I wasn't gonna try to my, make myself look good or bad, um, but I, I was willing to you know, sacrifice myself on the cross if necessary. 
Um, anyway, so the guy, the slain, listens to everything I have to say. Obviously, he already knew the guy had died, so it wasn't like some big surprise. Um, but he listens to everything I have to say, and then he goes, this man may have died unnecessarily. And I was like, that's bad. That hurts. Yeah, I know. Um, and then he said, we better damn well learn something from it. And um, it was like one of the most powerful, like learning, sort of positive. It turned into this amazing experience. He went and got the nurse administrator, the pharmacist, all these people. We all came into the room. We went through the whole case again, and like where all the things are. There was no assignment of blame at all. That was just like not what he was talking about. He was like, let's figure out how we can prevent this from happening again. And we really went through it. You know, nobody was like, we should fire this person or you should be fired, anything like that. Dennis Slayman for to. Not to this day because I don't keep in touch with them. For, but for years afterwards, was always very cordial to me, happy to talk to me about career choices, etc. Um, and it was actually this amazingly positive experience, and very different than many of the times that I've seen errors take place. So I started to to think about this a little bit, this error concept, and how we deal with this. And then right around the exact same time, actually, within within months, this book came out called "To Err Is Human: Building a Safer Healthcare System." I don't know if anybody's ever seen this book or heard of it. But this was a very powerful book. It came out like in December of 1999, which is exactly what I was mentioning. Um, and it had all these quotes in it that, you know, I bought this book because I was interested in this thing. And I was floored by some of the quotes. You know, 100,000 people a year die as a result of medical error. Few tangible actions to improve patient safety can be found. Must we wait another decade? Reliability in medicines like other industries. And then my personal favorite is that it's equivalent to two jumbo jets colliding every day while the healthcare system sits idly by. And this just did not, I, I couldn't reconcile these findings with what I had just been through. You know, this idea that like this one dude had a problem, and not to mention, like, I mean, the guy had recurrent sarcoma requiring, you know, multiple doses of rescue chemotherapy. Obviously, he was going to die of his disease. But I couldn't reconcile what they were saying, that jumbo jets are colliding, we don't care. I mean, I had beaten myself up. We had, like, taken, we had stopped all clinical activities on that floor to try to, sort of figure out what, what had happened with this fellow. How could this be true? So that, that's the preamble for the talk. So now what I'm going to try to do during this talk is this is, this is photoshopped. <laughs> I didn't do that. Uh, what I'm going to try to do with this talk is, is give you a little overview of like medical error, what people are talking about. This is, a, this is a buzzword now, obviously. Back in 1999, we didn't talk about it at all. We're going to look at some of the data. I'm going to talk about a little bit of the relationship between error and malpractice, because people are always very interested in, in, in that particular relationship, although I don't particularly care about it. Um, I'm going to discuss, this is where I'm going to spend a lot of the time, discussing the real barriers to patient safety. Like, you know, what's the real problem? Um, and we're going to try to reclassify error within some other contexts. And then I'm going to give you guys some specific recommendations to how you can help improve your system in your own practice. Okay, uh, the, the Institute of Medicine has put out this book called To Air is Human. This is a very, this is a very erudite clan of people that are among the leading thinkers in, in healthcare. Many academics, many people from industry, many people from other industries that are brought in. They decided to, to uh, tackle medical error first as part of their plan to transform the quality of American um, healthcare. It's kind of interesting they chose error first and not like overuse or anything, but they did. To their credit, they have issued reports on, on insurance and overuse in the subsequent years, which were much better than this original sort of crappy report. But um, anyway, so this is just, again, the, what their, their key findings are. And I just want you to take it in again. 100,000 people a year. We're not doing anything. Jumbo jets are colliding. 
Okay, so this report was actually very, very powerful when it came out, and people got pretty pissed. Fortunately, there were a series of national crises that happened afterwards that decreased people's pissedness about this. Um, so there were lots of articles written about it. The the president, you know, and that was the president. He made a lot of you know faces and such, um, <laughs> and, and and they had all these things. Groups of um, private payers, like the Leapfrog Group, emerged calling for all sorts of things. We'll get into some of that. And the Institute of Medicine itself called for a 50% reduction in medical error in five years, which on its face is so ridiculous that it just it makes you wonder who you know copy edited the book. Like, was it supposed to say 5%? Because, I mean, nothing happens in medicine in five years, but you know, historic transformations of things don't happen you know, very quickly like that. Anyway. We'll get into this. So Leapfrog Group is just one of the people that emerged out of this movement. Doctors and nurses and such can't be trusted. So we've got to turn to GM. GM in turn created this, not just GM, but many of the big payers out there created this group, Leapfrog, 100% funded by, by industry and stuff, payers. And they said, we're going to set the standards. And if you guys won't you know, pay attention, um, then we'll do it for you. And they started to say, you have to do these three things. And their plan was to, you know, reward compliant hospitals and you know, sort of strong or encourage non-compliant hospitals to, to do these three things. That was their first thing: was computer physician order entry, evidence-based hospital referral, and ICU care. Um, why they chose these those three is a little bit unclear, but we'll talk more and more about it, this as we go on. But that's the that's the climate. You know, you got a pissed off politicians. You've got a report that does not sit well with the public. And you've got the payer group now starting to get into the quality movement, and their motivations may be a little bit different than, say, doctor motivations or even patient motivations. So you got this really bizarre context going on. For a couple of years, UCI was a leapfrog yeah. group approved mm -hmm. or acknowledged hospital. Well, a lot of hospitals devoted a tremendous amount of resources to getting leapfrog approved because people were afraid of these leapfrog groups. Or they were both afraid and thought that they could get money. You know, that th there was going to be real competition. If you got leapfrog approved, you could negotiate better rates, you could get paid more, etc. So hospitals spent an enormous amount of resources trying to go do those three things: computer physician order entry, ICU people, and uh, what was the other one? I can't remember. No, no I see people I said already. Yeah, yeah, there's a second one. Referral. It's referral, evidence-based referral. That's the whole means. like to high volume centers, you know, people who do a lot of cabbages, you send patients there. So anyway, that was now Leapfrog has sort of lost a lot of its teeth. There have been other things that have superseded this error movement, plus I think it's been somewhat exposed. Um, so now people aren't as interested in devoting huge amounts of resources. But the the climate's still there. The people are interested in, in error, and we have to talk about how we're going to respond when we're when the error norms are being dictated by outside forces that aren't doctors and nurses or even patients, which is a problem. All right, so let's talk about some of the real barriers to enhance safety because they do occur. This guy did die. I mean, you know, this happens. We all can talk about cases where something bad happened. Maybe they didn't die, but something happened that wasn't right you know, by the by luck. You know, it got picked up or whatever, or it turned out that it didn't matter in the end. The guy's sepsis cured itself, even though we, you know, didn't treat him. So, um, which can happen. You know, it can get lucky a lot of the times, actually. So we'll talk about some of these things. The first one I want to talk about is the unclear baseline rates, and this is a real, real problem, because if you don't know where you're at, it's hard to figure out where you're going. And so this is how this is the Harvard Medical Practice Study. It's a very famous study, um, and this is how they determine those numbers that we were talking about in the, in the uh, IOM report. Basically, they looked at a whole bunch of charts. They had physicians review the charts and say, was there an adverse event here or not? 
They didn't define error. They called it an adverse event. Anything bad. They have a reaction to an antibiotic. Did you have a rash? Did you get, get elevated creatinine in response to something? Or did you know you take out the wrong kidney? You know, any of those things were qualified as adverse events. Subsequently, two physicians looked at it and decided that the adverse event was due to negligence. They didn't really use the word error in this report. In fact, they, they, I shouldn't say they didn't really use it. They did not use the word error in this report. Um, but nonetheless, they, they did this, this whole thing and they came up with some findings. So they looked at 30,000 charts from, 84 in, from New York in 1984, and it was published in 92. Um, the overall adverse event rate, any adverse event was about 3% of admitted hospital, uh, of admitted patients. You know, sometimes you leave a, you know, a thingamabob in the chest. It happens. Um, it always looks so obvious, you know, on the x-ray. But, you know, you've been there in the middle of the chest, and so stuff hides back there. It's really easy for things to slip back in there, you know. It's like, you show it to the picture of the people, the people on the street, they're like, oh my god, yeah, obviously we shouldn't be doing this, but nonetheless. Um, so there were a bunch of adverse events. Most of them, nothing happened. It was uh, a transient bump in their creatinine, they had a, a little allergic reaction that was easily treated and moved on. Some of them had um, some very serious things happen. And then, you know, for a small proportion, about one in eight of the, the people of the adverse events resulted in death. And that's it. That's how they came up with that number. That's how the Institute of Medicine came up with that number. If you multiply 0.4%, which is 3.6 times 0.13, um, times the number of admissions in a year, so you assume that, that everybody represents New York, and so, you know, New York is just like everywhere else, you get to 98,000 a year. So it was like kind of like a back of the envelope kind of calculation, kind of stuff normally we, we scoff at. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're like, are you kidding me? We throw that out. But this one works. to West yeah, we wouldn't let it go into West Jam. We'd say, you know what, just report what you have. Don't try to get all fancy extrapolating it across the universe. So, um, so this is really kind of like sketchy information at best. But this was, that is how it was derived. There was nothing else. So, and it doesn't say what proportion of those patients were on death's door anyway. To we'll, get to, we'll get to all that, but you're absolutely right. So what were the adverse events? You know, this is the picture, right? There's doctors walking up and taking perfectly healthy people off the street and putting a bullet in their head. You know, it turned out that like, you know, half of them were operative problems. You know, somebody had a bleeding episode after an operation, somebody got a wound infection, those kinds of things. A few of them were drug related. Those were the elevated creatinines and allergic reactions. Some of them were diagnostic or therapeutic mishaps. In general, that what that was a euphemism for was um, like a drop lung or a wound infection related to a central line. They didn't consider that to be a, um, uh, an operative malfunction, but that's like a bedside thing, so it got stuck into that. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, that's this one. The diagnostic and therapeutic things were like when you just screwed up and forgot what you were doing. So that was, that's sort of what we're dealing with, and we'll get into this. So what was the face of medical error, and this is what Dr. Langdorf has alluded to. You know, they want it to be this, and this is a very famous medical error case that I mean, predates you. Uh, but this is Betsy Lehman. She was a reporter for the Boston Globe who um, uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer, correctly, um, and was undergoing treatment, and this is pre-blog, but was writing about it all the time. She was sort of like pre, you know, blogging about it before there was a blog, like literally giving her like sort of daily account of this. And then, because breast can you know, cancer drugs are often in these bizarre calculations of meter squares and all these things, she got a 100x um, overdose of some chemotherapeutic, I forget which one, and you don't recover from that. So she died um, while blogging about this on the, you know, the, the Boston Globe, which is a pretty well-known paper. So that did not go over well. So that, she that was in one of the top cancer hospitals in the United States. Right. That's right. 
So this happened, you know, this is a real thing. So you have people have in their mind, they hear this report of 100,000 people are dying, and then you hear this case of Betsy Lehman, you're like, my God, they're killing our brightest reporters and writers, you know, these damn doctors with their Uzis. You know, this is Jennifer Santiana. She actually is someone who is more contemporary with you. She was the young woman who, at Duke, received the wrong blood type heart and lung transplant. That's a pretty bad screw up, right? That's a straight up, can't do it, just major <laughs> incompatibility. And so she died immediately thereafter, um, and it caused quite a stink. So, but this is the face, you know, when these things reach the public sphere, these are the faces of it, you know. There's another face in the medical <laughs> Funny thing is, when I incorporated Michael Jackson into this originally, he wasn't dead yet. It was just his face was the medical error. You know, like, look at that disaster. <laughs> and now there's actually, you know, medical error, error associated with it. So it's, I didn't have to change my slide, which was, which was nice. Yes. Well, there's <laughs> some kind of wink was going on. Um, but I would submit that that's not the case, that the face of medical error is more like this. Um, so, you know, we have the, the public has this perception of young people being offed, and we have, there's, but there's a different reality out there. So when we look at what the, meta, the errors really were, this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. I mean, this is the face or, or the rear end of medical <laughs> error, right? It's DQ ulcers, it's post-op wound infections, it's allergic reactions, um, and it's some misdiagnoses. And this is especially true in multiply injured or ill, co multiple comorbid, very old patients. Okay, and the reason is that they're evident. When, they're, when you do anything even slightly wrong, their creatinine gets bad and you, know, you notice it. When you do that to a young person, no harm, no foul. So th these are the ones being injured and ill, and this is a, a you know, great contradistinction from the concept of jumbo jets colliding. You know, the jumbo jet thing is super serious. You know, people are going with their whole family and you know, they're going on vacation to Hawaii in a jumbo jet, and it's quite the tragedy. Um, when a 90-year-old gets a D-cube ulcer, and then ultimately get a septic from it and can't go back to the nursing home. You know, I mean, that is not exactly as serious of a public health problem as, say, two jumbo jets colliding. It's not good, but it does allow us to put this into some kind of context and understand where these numbers are coming from. All right. Um, negligence, I just put this in here real quickly, but they basically said that negligence accounted for about a quarter of all those errors. Negligence is kind of a weird thing. Um, but what was more interesting was that when it was an error of thought, so if it was like a post-op wound infection, that rarely got called negligent. But if it was an error of thought, like the patient came in with you know, swollen legs, joint pains, and hypothermia, and you forgot that it was hypothyroidism, you didn't diagnose that right away, that was more often classified as an error than if you know, the dude had post-operative bleeding which is kind of interesting because presumably the dude cut the vessel and, you know, and didn't tie it off correctly or bovey it correctly. So it's just interesting that the errors of thought were severely punished. And that brings me to, to my left knee, which is a take on, on a, a, Donald Bur a famous Donald Berwick uh, article called My Right Knee. Um, but this is indeed, that's my left knee. That's my, my patellar tendon being inserted to where my ACL used to be. Um, I bring this up because it goes like this. Look at this. 1.7% of adverse events were by emergency physicians, but 94% were classified as negligent. Shocking. But it's true. It's true. It's a true statement. Um, because they were almost all missed diagnoses. Someone came in with belly pain, we thought it was nothing, or we did something and it turned out it was nappy or something like that. And those were always, always, always characterized as negligent. 
Look at the other side of it, though. Half of the errors were by surgeons, but only less than a quarter of them were considered negligent. How can that be? And I thought about my knee uh, experience because that was actually very similar in time frame. So I had a, I tore my ACL and then I had to go, you know, get surgery. And I met my um, surgeon, who's like some you know, hotshot surgeon guy. And he's like, okay, you know, no problem. We're gonna have you back on the bike in no time. We're gonna be working out. You're gonna be all better in six months. This is gonna be great. No problem. I was like, all right, let's do this, you know. Um, and he's like, okay, just a couple things we gotta go over first. It might not work. Okay, I'm gonna do the surgery. You're gonna have it's gonna cost a lot of money, and it, it might not work. It's about five percent, ten percent chance. It's just not gonna work at all. The graft's not gonna take, and you're you know you have to have a redo. Okay, I can understand that. Um, things don't always work. There might be some excessive bleeding. We don't think it's likely, but there might be some excessive bleeding. And I was like, okay. And he's like, if that happens, we should pre-consent you for some blood transfusion. Like, oh, it seems reasonable, right? I might kill you. <laughs> what? That doesn't seem right, right? I mean, it's like right now my knee is wobbly. I don't like it much, but I can put a brace on. It feels okay. It's like, yeah, you know, there's a small chance. Yeah, we don't think it's really gonna happen, but I might kill you. Might die. It's, you know, what are you gonna do? Um, it's just it's your knee. I'm like, okay. Well, you know, that doesn't sound. I mean, I trusted the guy. I've met him a couple times. You know, in the pre-op pre phases and stuff. And I'm like, all right, come on, let's let's sign the form. So I signed that, and I'm like, they're shaving my knee at this point, right, you know, um, for the surgery. And then the anesthesiologist walked in, and I had never seen him before. Um, and he, he says, yeah, hey, how you doing? I'm going to be your anesthesiologist. I'm like, oh, hey, you know, how you doing? He's <laughs> you know? like, yeah, just a couple things you got to go over. <laughs> Number one, it might not work. <laughs> you might feel the whole procedure. I'm like, wow, that seems like not a good thing, but I mean, what choice do I have? If I don't sign the thing, then I'm definitely going to feel the whole thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, okay, I can buy that. So I, I agree to that. He's like, yeah, and the other thing is I might kill you. <laughs> well, it's a small chance, but you people reactions, you know, you dead. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I already said the surgeon can kill me, so it doesn't seem fair not to say that you can't kill me. <laughs> but it leads me to, to, to the, the idea of us. You know, can you imagine you walk into a patient's room and you're like, and you're like hi, so and so, you know, they're in bed eight or whatever, and you walk in, you're like, hi, before we get started, hold on, just a second. I know you want to tell me what's wrong with you. I know, I know. Uh, just, just a sec. There's a couple things we have to go over. Number one, I could just be wrong, <laughs> right? Uh, I could even make things worse. And, you know, there's a chance, there's pretty good, there's a chance I could just kill you, just outright, just kill you. <laughs> Do you still want to, like, have medical care? Is that, is that, you still want me to be your doctor? The next guy's going to say the exact same thing, but you still interested, right? And I know it's sort of facetious, but it's not that facetious. It's just that the concept of surgical errors and the the non-mutability of them, that they are part of the business, you know, of doing it. That when you do these invasive procedures, when you go get an opinion like that, when you let someone cut onto you, that something bad might happen, that's an accepted medical paradigm. Whereas thought misses are not, even though there's no evidence to suggest we can avoid those thought misses very frequently, at least. So it's just an idea to get your head around like some of these biases that go into this error reporting and why when people are dumping on the emergency department and stuff, you know, it, it feels unfair, right? It does feel unfair, and it is unfair, and this is why. It's because these surgeons, they, you know, they got the patient consents. You write down all the junk. It's virtually impossible that you could, you know, be called negligent. I mean, you could if you were really, really negligent, but the risks are understood. Just because something bad happens, nobody's going to say Anyway, so that's my left knee, and I suggest you do that next time you go in there. Go through that little list of things. I might give you the wrong medicine, I might make you bleed, cause a worse infection. You still want to go on. Um, 
This is the other epidemiologic piece. It's exact same de design by the same authors, um, but it was done 10 years later. Um, and it was done in Utah and Colorado instead of New York. In this one, they did exact same methodology, literally. And they, they found that the adverse event rate was 2.9 instead of 3.6. And only 6% of the people died instead of 13%. And that's how you get to 44,000 a year. That's, exact, that's the math, right? Brings up some interesting points that we'll get to. So th those are the those are the epidemiologic studies that were cited in the um, in the IOM report. People were hit to this. They were like, "Wait a minute, this doesn't this isn't right." And, and there were so several contrasting views. One that was this guy Hayward who looked at a bunch of deaths in the VA, and he basically did the thing. He looked at them all and he said, "Well, okay, these are people who died. How many of them have errors associated with them? How many errors even you know caused the death?" But then most importantly, how many of these people weren't, gonna, weren't at death's door? You know? And he concluded um, you know, in his JAMA paper that 0.5% of these, these patients could have lived another three months with good cognition. So there's still some error rate, but 0.5%, very different than 13% of all errors resulting in death. Um, this guy, Troy and Brennan, who was actually one of the art authors of the other two papers, in fact, he was the lead author of the, the other two articles I just cited, looked at his data again and said, well, what if we require three people to agree that it's negligent instead of just two? And the, what happens is the error rate decreases tenfold. Right? So just by at, ha, making three people agree as opposed to just two people saying it's an error. So there's some real problems with the numbers here. You can reduce the error rate by tenfold by just having another reviewer look at it. Interesting. So this is the summary of the epidemiology. We have really limited time points. We have very wide estimates of death. If you wanted to, you could almost say, hey, look, the one in 84, there was 98,000 deaths. And the one in, uh, in 2000, there were 44,000 deaths. That's more than 50% reduction right there. And so you could make the argument that we're on a downward trend already. Why are they making this nasty report? Um, the negligence term is, is ridiculous, and we really didn't discuss who was lost. That made, made some people conclude the following. Um, and I really enjoy this quote. The combination of the strikingly large numbers of errors and the connotation of the word error create an impression that is not warranted by the scientific work underlying the IOM report. The, the really interesting part about that statement is it's written by the lead author of the scientific work that underlines the IOM report. So the guy who did the studies doesn't agree with the, the, their conclusions. It's really, and he's a member of the IOM, actually. Um, apparently a dissenting member. Um, anyway, so then there's Meredith Rosenthal, who's another a, a really well-known Harvard um, researcher in, in error, concluded that you know this is such a flawed document. How is it that we paid so much attention to it? All right, so I'm going to stop on that thing for a second, shift gears a little bit, and talk about malpractice because people like it. People like to talk about malpractice. There's um, I'm not going to belabor the point. There's a lot of malpractice out there. About half of all malpractice costs come from the big, the big five, as they're called. You know, the chest pain, AAA, CNS bleedings, um, et cetera. Um, the things that you're more likely to get sued for and, and have payout is wounds, specifically missed stuff in wounds and missed fractures. So when you look at the data, um, this is what you sort of see, that the high risk claims are this black bar, and they occupy about 50%, maybe a little bit more than 50% of the total claims, and that overall, everything's arching forward. This, believe it or not, is the last year that we have continuous data for, 1993. There's occasional spot reports in the literature, but it's very, it's, we don't have, like, we can't really create graphs like this using the same methodology um, up after 1993. 
gonna skip that one because that'd be silly. Uh, and I'm gonna skip this. Well, I'll just talk briefly about this. These are the big ticket ones, just so you know when people are talking about, oh, everybody's, you know, these are, this is the ones where there's million dollar payouts, etc. It's a uh, C spine, T spine fractures. Not surprisingly, when people are paralyzed, that's missed. We we don't like that. Um, in, in these large databases, there were three of those that resulted in, in large amounts of disability and large amounts of payment. Uh, missed ICH, intracranial hemorrhage, um, and one patient in this big in the cohort that, you know, of the six that were the big payouts, one person was someone who went home and then killed somebody else. And they sued the doctor for not putting them on a, on a 5150 or the equivalent because it wasn't in California. Eh, you know, what are you going to do? But it's one case out of years and years and years. Um, the new kid on the block is the, is yeah, this is a new kid. Um, are the the stroke? You know, the TPA for stroke. That's probably the one where we're most concerned, or a very high litigianized sort of um, disease process. In just in the last few years, there have been about thirty three cases. That was the most recent tally was thirty three, of which um, the jury found in favor of the defendant the majority of time. There are a few sa sale um, settlements, and this is what it sort of looked like. So the overwhelming ones were verdict defendant. There were the, the verdict plaintiffs, and you can see some of them have big numbers associated with them. And the overwhelming majority of them, the ones where there's payout, was failure to give. Although the biggest case was when it was inappropriately given. Somebody got literally had to pay $30 million. I don't know what to do about it. I just put these things in there because people like to hear about malpractice. Um, there's a lot of... You know, there's a lot of discussion about like, you know, is it the lawyers? Is it the cost? Who's making all the money? Hey, what's that? Um, why does it cost so much? Well, it turns out there's a lot of cost. Uh, it's split about even, e even between the amount of money that's paid out to plaintiffs and then how much is paid out to lawyers to defend the cases, slightly in favor of the, the plaintiffs. So you can see that, you know, it's, it's not 10 to 1 or anything like that. It seems a little bit unfair, this kind of this thing that you know half the money's going to the lawyers, but that's the way it is. 64% um, of the ca cases came from the high-risk group. We're going to talk about this. And this, I think, is the biggest problem for us as physicians, because it just takes forever. I was named in a lawsuit when I was an intern. I wrote, I wrote on the chart, check dilantin level. That was, that was what I wrote. It wasn't my patient, but you know in rounds in the ICU, how like, frequently someone will write orders for someone else while the one person's, um, uh, while, while one person is is presenting the case that they're attending. Well, I made the mistake of writing check that level and then writing my name clearly. I learned from that one. As Mark can probably testify. Don't write, don't write your name clearly, and unless you're really at fault, they won't single you out. But otherwise, they're just, you know, they're shotgunning these things. But it took, it didn't take four years, but I think it took two and a half years to finally get dismissed on summary judgment. It was terrible, you know, and they kept, people kept calling me, the lawyer, they're like, now what was your involvement in this case again? I mean, you, want, you look at these lawyers, it's unbelievable, like how little they know what's going on in their own cases. And I'm like, uh, I told you, I wrote check dilant level, I had nothing to do with it. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, right, okay, uh, okay, yeah, don't worry about it. And then, you know, six months later, so what was your involvement in this case again? <laughs> Come on, guys. Two and a half years later, because I was such a small player and I was the intern, like nobody ever thought, like, hey, let's make a motion to get this guy off the case. They just never cared. So I was stuck on this thing for two and a half years and finally went away. But it really is, you know, it causes some distress. There's no question about it. But it does tend to go away. Some people talk about frivolous lawsuits. I think I, I put this in there just for the, the sake of understanding that that's really not the big issue. You know, frivolous lawsuits are not the main thing going. Um, in this relatively recent study, these guys looked at a whole bunch of uh, closed cases, and they found that 
of all the cases where there was no error, there was no payment. It was that simple. You know, it wasn't like people are shutting the patients up. They're like, oh, they're going to sue you and you're going to settle or whatever. Usually the patients had to be injured and have an error to get paid. On occasion, 13% of the total dollars went to claims without error. But I mean, that's not... The, that's not what's going on. In the, in the payouts, there are people who are injured and, the, and all of that kind of stuff. Interestingly, of course, 54% of the costs were administrative, meaning lawyers and, and things of that nature. So again, we see that um, I, I'm sort of building a case here that tort reform is unlikely to work. Because the lawsuits, in general, seem to have some merit. It's not like there's this enormous volume of uh, frivolous lawsuits. Finally, the case for tort reform not, not being a good way to fix the error problem is that when this guy Brennan went back and looked at that same data, he looked at all the claims paid in Utah Colorado and cross-referenced it against his data set to see how many of these cases that he had classified as negligent resulted in lawsuits and how many of the negligent, you know, how many other lawsuits he had misclassified. And it turned out that 97% of the negligent injuries didn't sue. Um, so there were only a few that actually did. Um, of the 14, of the you know, there were 18 claims out of the 15,000 cases that they had reviewed, which is a one percenter, which is about right. That's usually about one percent for um, admitted patients. There's a lawsuit associated with, and most of them didn't have any negligence and didn't pay. Um, and then there were a few that, you know, again, negligent. The the overwhelming majority of all these negligent injuries just didn't sue anybody. And the problem is that old people, that's who get the negligent injuries, minor injury, and people with low income are much less likely to sue. But that's not exactly fair, right? I mean, if you suffer the injury, presumably you should be comp compensated for that injury. But lawyers won't take your case if you're old. There's no payout. You know, there's nothing worth doing. So the point of all of this is that it, it kind of argues against the tort reform process to decrease errors. And it might be a good reason to decrease to to argue in favor of a tort reform process because we don't like getting sued and you know whatever. And it might it might make us defensive. But in terms of like actually making us, you know more careful, it's unlikely to be very helpful because there's just there seems to be very little relationship between negligence, adverse events, and lawsuits. It's kind of a dark word. These might be the ones that you can prevent. But the errors still happen, right? This is another kid. This is a very a recent case. And this is a little kid who came in, it's a very typical kind of error case, where he came in to get his chest, abnormal chest wall cor surgically corrected, and over the course of several days he was administered IV Toradol, subsequently developed a, a gastric ulcer that perfed, was not recognized, and over two or three days died. And so, you know, this kid was perfectly healthy other than his chest being a little bit weird looking with his shirt off. So this again makes us think, okay, well we don't know the baseline rates, which does complicate our job to decrease errors, but they do happen, so we have to do something. So what, uh, what, what can we do? How do we get through this? Another one is this question, another barrier though, is questionable public support. And I, I put this in here because, have you ever committed an, a medical error? Everybody has. Have you ever experienced a medical error? Have you been the recipient of a medical error? When asked, shocking numbers of people claim to have had an experience with medical error. 40% of patients, and f I think it was about third, a third of doctors claim that they personally had been the recipient of a medical error. Huge numbers. And yet nobody, if you look down here, nobody thinks that medical error is a serious problem. I mean, even these, these are people who are having it done onto them, supposedly. This is a survey, so who knows if it's really true. But that's not what people are concerned about. And that's a, that creates a problem when we're trying to tackle this, right? People aren't, con 
overly concerned with medical error. They're concerned with costs. They can't afford health care. We all know that, right? That that's the big thing here. And that creates a bit of a problem, and we'll get into that momentarily. This is, this is how we get into that. How many of you have been stuck by a needle? <laughs> okay, it looks like show of hands. You guys are all early in your training. I have to. Um, you guys are all early in your training. It looks like about a quarter of the people have already been stuck by needles, right? There are thousands of needle sticks annually. People, lots of people have gotten HIV, about 300, and an unknown number have contracted hepatitis C from needle sticks. A large number. It's not small. All of these are preventable. I mean, it's a needle. You know, it's not like someone was throwing it around. I mean, you took the needle out and stuck it in there, and presumably you could have not done that. So they're all preventable. So, you know, are you just careless and stupid with your own health? How are we getting all of these dumb needle sticks? Right? So, I don't know, who, who, what does the nurse do when, you sit, when there's a tough stick? What's the first thing they do? They take off their glove, right? I mean, it's the very first thing they do. Oh, this is a tough stick. IV drug abuser, you know, septic shock, you know, dude that has known HIV AIDS, you know. And it's like, what do you do? Oh, I can't get a vein, obviously, because that's the ones you can never get a vein with. First thing they do, cut the cut the glove off. Let's get rid of these let's get rid of these pesky things. And that's like that's the problem, right? I mean, it shows you that, that we have production demands that are contrary to this error issue. And I mean, this is people who are playing with their own health. We're not playing with patient's health. This is like straight up, you're the only one who's gonna get hurt if you stick yourself with the IV drug abusing needle. You know, So we have these production demands. Yeah, we could do it differently. We could do ultrasound guided, you know, robotic IV sticks for every patient. That would reduce needle sticks, but it would cost too much. And we already saw what people care about. Healthcare is eating away our economy. So we can't do that. And this is where I start to introduce the idea that error and efficiency are, have to be on a balance. And so we have to start to think about it a little bit better. The corollary to this, oops, oops, serious. The corollary to this is narcotic drug administration. You know, here we have something that drugs that have the widest therapeutic index in medicine. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, really hard to kill somebody with narcotic drugs, um, unless they're shooting it, and that's not medical error. So that's a separate issue. It's really, really difficult to do. And yet, they're super heavily regulated. Up until recently, you know, we had to do the triplicate thing. Now we still, we still have to do the watermark papers. But we had all of these things. They never caused problems, so why do we do it? And this has to do with these, these public perceptions and the, uh, the production demands we have. Here we have crazy values of, in society that dictate that we don't turn anyone into drug addicts, so we have to go through all these hoops. Um, but in fact, it doesn't. these are crazy parameters to make us deal with, like filling out all these forms constantly. So the point here is to, to argue that the production demands of society are going to dictate a lot of what happens with this error bit. And we're going to have errors because, in large part because they make us do things quickly. One way to reduce all of errors would be to have two doctors independently review every single case. You know, it's just too damn expensive. It's bad enough that we have to have one doctor do it because doctors cost so much and nurses cost so much. Unfortunately, that's a problem. So when they tell us that, you know, you medicine people should behave like nuclear power or airplanes, we go, there's something different and I'm not sure what it is. So we don't, we're, we're, they, you know, they tell us to follow the aviation type, type stuff and, you know, they have these checklists and we had a, thing once with these guys that came in and told us to have situational awareness and to check your six all the time. I don't know if you got Air Force people, which means you're supposed to have people looking out for your back and oh, it's 
complete nonsense. But you know, it, the question is, do these other models and other industries that have been so successful, I mean, nuclear power plants seldom explode, that's true. Airplanes rarely crash, that's also true. Um, so, uh, but are there reliability standards really applicable to medicine? And you know, one thing's, and that's what the IOM concluded, that it was. That it, and they had these airplane people like doing these, as part of this IOM process, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just like us, you know, we have checklists and stuff and it'll all be good. So I asked the following question, you know, so here, here you go. It's a nuclear power plant. It's a rainbow on it that looks good. <laughs> so, what is different about medicine? So, you know, this is this is the bad part, right? I lived in Europe when this happened, and not only did that was that bad, but there's this toxic cloud that went over Western Europe. That Chernobyl. They, yeah, this is Chernobyl. Um, I forget the year now. Eighty-six. <laughs> Somewhere in that neighborhood. I think I was in Chernobyl. Yeah, I was in junior high. Um, but this toxic cloud went over all of Western Europe and had everybody all freaked out. But they didn't tell us about that until after it had already passed, which was lovely. Because they didn't want everybody to freak out. <laughs> awesome. So, you know, this kind of thing results in this kind of thing. And that's a victim of Chernobyl, you know. And this is a problem. This is a serious problem. This is what we call a precluded error, right? This is an error that is not allowable. And it's not that it's not allowable to an individual, it's not allowable to society. Okay, medical errors are very different than that. They're actually quite allowable. We we tolerate a certain amount of error, whether we intend to or not. We know that we do. You know, we saw that girl who got the wrong heart blood, you know, the heart, wrong typed heart lung transplant. That's a problem, right? But nobody said we should stop transplanting people, right? Or close down Duke. Or close down Duke, right? You know, they didn't fire the surgeon. You know, it was a mistake, you know, and, and we, we learn from it. We try to, you know, improve the processes so it doesn't happen a lot again. Nuclear power doesn't work that way. You have a nuclear meltdown, you're not allowed to have that industry. It destroys the entire industry. There's been no nuclear power plant built in America since 1976, right? In the face of a fact that my house is going to be underwater in something like 50 to 80 years, because I live at sea level, unfortunately, which is nice now. It's going to be more problematic when I need to have a snorkel. Um, <laughs> in the face of that, you know, we're essentially unwilling to to discuss nuclear power out of fear of this stuff, out of fear of because you know, it's just too scary. Nobody wants the thing anywhere. They don't want the thing in their state. They don't want the nuclear waste on their deserted mountain in Nevada. You know, I mean, that's literally where we're at. They're like, we got to shoot that stuff into outer space. But the aliens are saying we don't want that stuff in outer space. <laughs> So, you know, it's like a real problem to deal with this. It's so scary that people don't even want it, even though we're all going to boil to death shortly. So, <laughs> you know, it's, this is the idea of a precluded error, something that just can't happen. It's so damn scary, it threatens the very foundation of the industry. Okay. I used to give this talk. So you're, you're, you're going to, you're a pilot, right? It's not a runway, but let's just pretend it is. And you're in your cockpit. And uh, you know you're like, okay, we're gonna be going to you know Topeka today, and you know here we go, uh, we're about to take off, and you look out your front window, and you see that, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, what do you do? It's 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 just yeah, you cancel the damn flight, right? It's over, no flight today, too dangerous to fly. Okay, I used to do this. I, I like the the goose one now. Like same thing, you know, you're looking out your window, and you see all this flock of geese and stuff. And you're not sully, so you you cancel your flight. You're like, all right, that, you know, no problem. You know, people are going to be slightly inconvenienced, but we're not going to run through a tornado. Okay, now it's Saturday night. 
It's a skeleton crew. You know half the nurses already called in sick. You're driving into your night shift, and you get to, you know, for me, you know, the night shift starts at 10 or 11 or whatever. And you drive through the parking lot, and you just see the overflow of people. They're not, they're on the patio. They can't even fit in the waiting room, right? It's a disaster. It's a total cluster in there. You don't really have the option to be like, you know what? Cancel the flight. <laughs> it's too dangerous to practice medicine today. The chance of me making an error, oh, some old dude's going to come in with a rubber or triple, we're going to mess stuff up. We're just going <laughs> to shut this operation down. <laughs> People will be inconvenienced. Yeah, so it doesn't work, right? You can't cancel the flight. That's a laughable idea, right? And yet, they're comparing us to things that are very easy to cancel the flight. You know, to say, hey, you know, whatever. They're comparing us to an industry where if, there's, if you don't get one of those checklists, you don't do it. It doesn't work that way. The person who's most likely to benefit from medicine that is an emergent ruptured AAA, right? Dude, like he just blew out his AAA. <laughs> Things are going badly. He's old. They always have hypertension, renal insufficiency, a baseline, all of these problems, and he's going to die 100% guaranteed or very, very close to that if you don't repair it. That's the person who is both most likely to benefit from medical care and most likely to have a medical error committed unto him. Right? It's just, it's a messy situation. It's a big, giant mess. We don't have time to think. We don't have time to be all careful and cross and clamp all the little bleeders. We don't have time to get all the diagnostics. You just slice and go, and you, and you see what happens. So medical medicine is really, really different. When the errors are the highest, highest risk errors, old people, sick people, emergent conditions, people accept them the most. It's the opposite, right? Like the, the, than any of these other industries. If the errors are a lot in other industries, or if the risk is high, you just say, no way, I'm not gonna do it. What, the core reactor's heating up two degrees? Uh-uh, shut that baby down. We can get some, we'll pull some electricity off the grid from you know, the hydroelectric plant. Very straightforward, you know? So there's a real problem with this. So that introduces this idea of marginal reliability, which is it's a marginal error, as opposed to a precluded error, one that can never occur. In medicine, we operate on the, the margins. We're like, we're trying to find that balance between efficiency and error. We could make it so that no errors ever happen, but then there would be some serious problems, like people you know, costing 10 times as much. Actually, we could probably never make it that way, because that old dude who has a ruptured AAA, it doesn't matter if 10 doctors look at him or not, there's still a high probability of error. Um, so you know, we have this problem of trying to define how much error is really tolerable and how we decide. You know, again, we were compared to the auto industry, so I feel compelled to once again point out this. Has anyone ever seen this thing before? This is your. This is in your time, <laughs> not mine. This is so. This is the benefits to replacing. It's kind of interesting to look at. To this, the, the savings would be there's 180 burn deaths a year, 180 serious burn victims, and 2,100 burn vehicles. Costs us $200,000 per death, $67,000 per injury, and $700 per per vehicle, and they have their little back of the envelope calculation. They came up with that. That, uh, that, that payout costs $49 million. However, replacing the faulty part would cost $11, but there's a lot of cars. You have to do it on all the cars, not just the ones that explode. Um, so it's 11 million cars and 1.5 million like, trucks. $11 times all of that is $137 million. Now, I'm not a math whiz, but 137 is less than 49. So guess what the Ford Pinto people did? Right, so Ford Pinto is the clue, right? So this was, you know, this is a Ford Pinto memo. It's very famous. And they elected not to replace those, those parts. And people burned to death. They expected it to, you know. 
Uh, that was, they knew that was going to happen. There was no question about it. These memos were leaked, and it was a very big problem. This is the cold-blooded calculation that these wonderfully reliable, you know, industries that we're supposed to compare ourselves um, to did this. Now, you know, people will say, "Oh, yeah, it's 1968. That's a million years ago. It's free love. You know, nobody cared about it. <laughs> <laughs> all that kind of stuff." But you know, we shouldn't be too quick to say that this problem has disappeared, right? I mean, the Toyota people probably aren't as egregious as that, but it's absolutely certain that they knew they had problems and didn't issue, and delay, drag their feet, didn't issue their recalls out of concerns over cost. So we get these issues. You know, one the major constraint, the major strain in our system is really that we want to spend everything. We want to do everything and have no errors. But society, especially payers, but you know, indirectly that's everybody, um, they don't they don't want to pay for it. So we're, that's the big strain in our system. If it were up to me, we'd just, you know, be straightforward. Just do everything, don't worry about it, you know? But we don't have that kind of, those kinds of resources, so we have to be more parsimonious about it. And so that's the strain, you know, that's the problem. Um, and then, of course, applying reliability standards from these other industries is, uh, is a medical error, as concluded by Dr. Rosenthal, who's super smart. All right, so how do we get better? We get better by this practice, right? Practice makes perfect. I am allowed to walk up to any one of you and say, at any time, say, what are the causes of peripheral eosinophilia? Right? I can do that. And you have to answer me. And if you don't, I'm allowed to make fun of you and berate you both in private and in public. I'm allowed to write bad evaluations about you, and I'm allowed to do all sorts of nasty things to your career and say that person has poor medical knowledge. Which is, you know, the kiss. That and being inappropriate are the kiss of death in medicine, right? If you're inappropriate and you have poor medical knowledge, you might as well, you know, carry carry. <laughs> um, so what we do in Amer in America, we really do. We have the best trained people out there. I mean, I I'm more than willing to put our doctors against doctors and nurses um, throughout the world. We're obviously well trained. You spend hours and hours and hours torturing yourself trying to learn all these mnemonics, etc. With the, you know, again. Things that have no clinical utility, and certainly you could look up if you needed to, but you're not allowed to. You have to know it at the top of your head. It has to be at the tip of your tongue, otherwise you are berated. So that's that's our model to get better, right? But it's not a good model. Remember my case, right? It wasn't that we didn't know. It was in the mix of things, in the interactions between us, the ball is dropped. So this model, although it's wonderful and you should strive to be the best person you can, it's not good enough. We've maxed out on that one, I think. I don't think that the problem anymore is medical knowledge. It's something different than that. So we have to like start to rethink our models of how we become better as physicians and how we interact with the rest of our colleagues. This is the, this is the issue of systems. So our model says that you should just be better. And this is a, a funny little cartoon. It's not particularly funny, but it's a cartoon, <laughs> actually, that, intru that introduces a, an idea of, you know, I don't give a frogs whatever you think, Bates. It's 5.30 on a Friday, and I say we close up. Okay, so it's silly, right? Who is that guy? Who is he? What's his job in, in the OR? Is he the surgeon? Is he the anesthesiologist? Is he the scrub, the, the, the what's that, the nurse who hands out the, scrub nurse, you know, the most important person in the OR, you know? Who are these people? You know, we can't even agree who's in charge of an OR. If you ask a room full of anesthesiologists who's in charge of the case, without exception, they will say they are. If you ask a room full of surgeons who's in charge of the case, without exception, they will say they are. That's bizarre, right? In our most controlled environment, it's completely unclear who's in charge, right? 
absolutely unclear. Our system is super weird, right? And this is this is why our, our model doesn't get, it doesn't matter if the surgeon gets better and the anesthesiologist get better if we can't figure out who's actually running the show, right? That's where we need to improve. What do I got here? And this is just, this is some of our systems. We are competitive. Sometimes we have goals that match each other's, and but very often our goals don't match each other, right? That we think that, you know, the important part is to flush the waiting room, right? And, and that's very important to us as emergency physicians. The surgeon, on the other hand, doesn't want to get an abdominal pain case, or the medicine team doesn't want to get an abdominal pain case on their floor that's an happy, you know? They, they, that's like terrifying to them for some reason. I don't know why, but anyway, it is because they're going to kill that person. I don't know how they kill them, but apparently they, somehow they're capable of doing it, or at least they're worried that they're capable of doing it. So you know, they require a CT scan surgery consult before you admit. You know, they argue for that before you admit an abdominal pain case to their to their service. So these conflicts happen all the time. We're all actually looking out for the patient. It's just our perspective is a little weird. The upper organization of, a higher, of the hospital is supposed to help sort out these sort of disputes. You know, uh, Dr. Langdorf is supposed to go to a committee meeting with the chair of surgery, chair of medicine, some hospital people, and they're supposed to work on a protocol. The problem is those protocols are never fair. They're not right, they're settled through political means. The surgery's stronger and the guy's louder, or Dr. Langdorf just you know, did something extra good for the hospital so he has particular political clout that month or something like that. So these, this, when they get up to this higher level, the, the policies fail, like you're talking about in your thing today, right? How the poli we, we made a great argument, we got a policy that if a bed's ready, we send the patient up right away. And look what happened, it messed up, the, the, it delayed the antibiotics, right? Which is like the opposite of what's supposed to happen there. So there's a flexibility that gets lost when you rely on protocols and upper organizations to settle these disputes. You can't say that everybody who gets admitted to a medicine with undifferentiated abdominal pain has to have a surgery consult and a CT scan without simultaneously saying, I don't care if some dude sits in the waiting room for 10 hours, right? So the, this thing, the, the only way to resolve that is on a case-by-case -case interactive communicative kind of um, style, where you say, look, today's maybe a good day for you guys to suck one up, you know, and then, but we have to build that relationship, and that is something that medicine has not done. We've been highly departmentalized, um, I should say compartmentalized within our various departments with very, very little cross-disciplinary conferences or discussions. The future will be different. We will get better. But that's where we need to be. You getting better at, at, at pushing on bellies isn't going to help. I, I mean, you, it does for you youngins, <laughs> but, but that, you're going to get there. Uh, the final thing is these lack of proven strategies. And I'm going to go real quickly through this. This is the idea, you know, same old thing. Oh, well, we can reduce medical errors by like, you know, having timeouts and not cutting off the right leg instead of the left. You know, this is completely obvious, right? Don't write a zero in front of a decimal point, or write a zero in front of a, I, can, I always forget. You do write a zero, don't write, just say uh, Are we supposed to repeat the errors or uh, repeal them? I don't know. Anyway, so there's all these rules, you know, they're supposed to be completely obvious. And, and there's been some evidence-based reviews of them and it showed all these things that, you know, the, these smart people from UCSF did this whole thing and they're like, you know, all this stuff that you guys are talking about is bull. You know, this timeouts, counting sharps, those, there's, just, there's no yield there. Yes, it avoids the paper. You know, you don't want to be in the paper, I understand. You know, we all, no hospital wants to be the dude who accidentally lopped off the left knee instead of the, the right knee. I understand that. And it is bad, it shouldn't happen. 
But if we're looking for trying to improve things, this is just not where it's going to happen. You can devote a lot of resources to timeouts and stuff, stuff, stuff like that, which we all do. It's all mandated because it's easy to count whether you did it correctly or not. That's what I mean. You can't measure what's important. Make what you can measure important. Um, but in fact, none of this stuff matters. The stuff that matters, the, where there's the greatest strength of evidence, is this stuff. Giving people DVT prophylaxis. Get feeding surgical patients. You know, things that are complete. Oh, sorry. Skip the slide. Sorry, I skipped. I skipped did it. Uh, it just went by. That's it. On the back. On the back. See, it's, uh, on here, I've got like five slides showing, so I can't know where I'm. Uh, there's the buff guy. Yeah. So it's all the stuff that we. Ultrasounds for central lines. That was cited as the greatest, the, the, I mean, unbelievable, right? And then, you, but, you know, continuous aspiration of subglottic secretions in intubated patients. Duh. Um, <laughs> No, but I mean, the point here is that these are the things that are, have the greatest, you know, impact. And these are things that we know, but still get forgotten. And those are the things we need to be really working on, not these things like timeouts and things like that. And how do we arrange all this kind of stuff? Nutrition, feeding surgical patients is my favorite. Something like 80% of surgical cases are malnourished after two days or something like that. It's really <laughs> incredible. Um, anyway, there was a lot of back and forth about how, how these evidence-based people were jackasses and that they were insisting on evidence and they said you know it's completely obvious but you know just as an example the leapfrog group demanded computer physician order entry right it's completely no-brainer right that's gonna make everything better and in one case this is this is one of the early sort of uh, rebuttals to that idea the um, they noted a few things that 340 computer physician order entry systems were available on the market one a fully a hundred of them had never been used <laughs> by a single doctor, nurse, or patient. You know, never been used. They're just developed entities, which is just kind of interesting that they would approve these kinds of things, but they they they've not been used at all because the standards aren't high for for getting computer physician order entry systems approved. Um, in a study by these folks uh, in pediatrics, where you would think that medication errors would be most likely to cause a problem, because that's where you really could make a tenfold error or something like that. You know, decimal points, kids are small. Uh, kilograms versus pounds. Pounds, kilograms, hours, I don't know. Whatever. You can make a mistake, you know, that would be more substantial. And the doses vary widely as opposed to on the medicine floor where it's always a gram. You know, in kids it's gonna be it's gonna vary. Um, so people will be used to seeing a gram and twenty milligrams, you know, whatever. Probably not twenty milligrams, that'd be a good tiny baby. But um, Anyway, so where you think this would be the worst, they looked at their computer, their computer physician order entry and what the adverse event rates were and error rates, and you see what it is. Two fewer medication errors per 1,000 hospital days. You know, no difference in adverse events. And they actually interviewed a lot of the people who were involved in this, and it was no brainer. It was, it was, you know, the nurses are like, when we get a weird order, when it was handwritten, we would ask. The problem with computer physician order entry is it looks so good. It doesn't look scribbled out and all that kind of stuff. So it, it actually looks more sort of objective and clear. So there's less chance to interact. It's sort of like when you do um, verbal orders. You know, verbal orders are the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone. But there's at, you, when we do verbal orders, we usually are communicating directly with the nurse about a specific case. It's actually probably the best way of delivering um, orders as opposed to like, verbal orders that are over the phone when you're asleep. When we do verbal orders, it's usually really, really, you know, we all know exactly who we're talking about. It's in a trauma bay, all those kinds of things, but those are the biggest no-nos in all of medicine, it seems, these days. Anyway, so there's very well, few. They, they lump all verbal orders exactly. in together. It's right. the throw the baby out with the bathwater right. mentality. Exactly. 
So we know that sometimes verbal orders are, are bad, and so let's never allow any of them. <laughs> yeah, even though, you know, obviously we need them. All right. So, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff I can talk about, but I'm just going to talk about what you can do real quickly. I want you to appreciate your achievements. You know, individually, you're really, really great. You really are highly intelligent, highly motivated people. And I don't want these, these bad things to, to these reports saying that you're sitting there watching airplanes of airplanes full, full of your patients explode. I don't want that to detract from your morale, because it does. You know, when you hear, especially an emergency physician, where 94% of any adverse event that happens is due to negligence. I don't want that to happen to you. I want you guys to feel good about what you do. I feel, and the whole of our, our, our profession, I mean, not just us. I mean, if you had a brain surgery 50 years ago, you had a 90% mortality. Now it's less than 1%. For, for craniotomy. So we're getting better. This idea that we're just sitting there idly by is, is so absurd as to be scarcely worth arguing, except that it gets in the press and it, you know, people think that that's true. Um, so we have done really well. But we also have to accept, accept that improving safety is our historic mission in medicine. I mean, ultimately, it's you know, first do no harm kind of thing. So we do have to embrace that idea that we should improve. Okay. But we have to set the standards. We can't let the leapfrog group do it. We have to work with our patients to set the standard. With third-party payers and stuff, we have to be able to resist when they're, um, when they're telling us things like, oh, just reduce error rates by 50% in five years. We have to say, look, hey, this is going to be hard. You know, we've done the easy stuff. You know, the hard stuff is what's left over. Um, so what do we do? We're skeptical about these things, but not fully cynical. We want to recognize that when they come up with these numbers, that it, this is unlike, you know, most things are not likely to work, just like a drug, aviation style, crew resource management, unlikely to be useful. But we should be, um, shouldn't be cynical and just say there's nothing we can do, because we can. Um, my big plug here is to really think about the doctor's model and the med student model, which is just to make yourself smarter, just get smarter and everything will work itself out, and to start to shed that a little bit. And to realize that the only way you're ever, we're ever going to really tackle this as a, as a unit, as a group, is if we become much more interconnected. If we are able to talk to each other um, in a real sort of non-judgmental manner where people are able to empathize with the other's situation, see the other person's interests, etc. Um, that's something that's key. One of the first steps towards getting there is obviously being human with your consultants and for them to be human with us. Um, but the other thing is to really get formally integrated into your systems in your hospital. I don't know if any of you, some of you are probably on those committees, like edge committees or something like that. But those things are helpful. Um, they really are. They, they get people to start seeing other people's perspectives. And at least at the higher level, it creates a little bit of communication. Ultimately, though, all that, what's really going to matter is what's happening on the ground. And you guys have to be the ones that, you know, bite your tongue sometimes and try to communicate with a belligerent, tired surgeon in the best interest of reducing errors in the future. We gotta get rid of this sort of blame and shame thing. When errors happen, we have to celebrate them in the sense that without them, we can't figure out how to improve our systems. Those nuclear power plants can't figure out how to get more efficient because <coughs> they, can't, they can't operate on the margin. They just have to have 14 times redundancy. That's the way it is, all right? Um, so we're gonna learn, so finally, that's the idea of learning from our errors and our M&Ms and such, and talking about specifically the interchange between what happened when the patient went from the ICU to the this place, or what happened here and there. When you read that story of that kid whose who's gut exploded on Tordal, it's an amazing story of just one person after the other not talking to each other. That's all it is. Nobody, no individual was negligent, the whole thing. It was just nobody 
you know, stepped back and, and, and took a bird's eye view of the situation, was willing to say, oh, you know, maybe the, you know, insist that the surgeon come in. The surgeon came in, but then didn't, the person who insisted the surgeon was there wasn't even there, didn't hang out to talk to the surgeon and tell him what his concerns were. He just wrote a note saying, consult surgery immediately. You know, that's it. And so the surgeon misdiagnosed it, you know, and that's the kind of thing that we can't allow to happen. We have to be more proactive in those communication kind of things. Um, and then just the concluding statements are, you know, the, there are numerous, very real, very large barriers to reducing medical error. I've talked about many of them. Malpractice, unfortunately, doesn't have anything to do with error, so I don't know what to do to reduce your malpractice risk. Um, and then, obviously, like we've talked about, error and efficiency are really part of the same thing. We, we operate on the margins, we're gonna have errors on occasion, and what we need to do is learn from those errors to improve our systems. Um, and I think that's all I'm gonna say for now. Fine. Yeah. I'll take any questions if anybody has any. Yeah. Or I won't. <laughs> so what, so what, are, what are your suggestions for how we should change our practice? You went through some of them. Mm -hmm. You talked about the abbreviations and stuff, but anything uh, more specific or concrete? You know, I, I, unfortunately, I just don't think there are really good answers that are highly concrete. I think anything like that, we're already doing. You know, the, the low-lying fruit has been eaten a long, long time ago. The next step is really organizational and interpersonal. And how to, you know, finding some way, my guess is the best way will be finding some way to formalize a, an interpersonal relationship with consultants and people like that, and nurses scrub techs, et cetera. You know, there's, there's some famous reports uh, by this guy, Don Abedian, who is an automobile quality improvement person. And what he found was, he was bought, brought in, some Armenian dude, was brought into Japan to figure out what the hell was going wrong with all their cars. This is back when, you know, Japanese automotives was considered the lowest form of, autom you know, of automobile. They were just junk. And they couldn't understand why it was. And he came in there and he realized that, you know, at the higher levels, nobody has a damn clue what's going on. What they do, when they found out that on Friday afternoons, there were a lot of lemon cars being built because they have all these data, they would just fire the crew from Friday afternoon or replace it with a new crew. Problem is that the Friday afternoon uh, malfunction continued. And so it wasn't until they got everybody at the table, and I mean everybody, you know, all the guys who are supposed to be ratcheting down on the, the, the bolts, to everybody that they realized that the typical situation where errors were occurring were that, you know, on Friday afternoon is the only time that the housekeeping or the, the janitorial staff can mop up a certain kind of floor because the other times it's just not available. So they mop up the floor and that creates a problem with your ability to get your feet planted so that you can crank on that bolt, right? So only, and the point here, and so in fact, this isn't any, nobody's doing a bad job. It's the janitorial staff viewing their little world as, you know, I got to get the floors cleaned up by Friday afternoon. It's the workers saying, well, I'm just, I'm, my job is just to crank on the bolts as hard as I can, not whether it's, you know, good enough or not. And the only way you figure out these kind of problems is to get everybody together and have them talk to each other about what these things are you know, what the issues are. So I think that we have to do a much better job of doing those kinds of things. And some of the committee, like the EDGE committee and other committees in the hospital are pretty good at it, but there's still, like, you know, I was on the hospital PI committee for a couple of years, and it's still way too high up, you know. People are looking at large data sets and trying to infer things when really, you guys all know that it happens at the ground level. You know, the mistakes happen 
at two in the morning and how do we guard against that we have to build in things to make us you know communicate more efficiently to make us care about what other people say um, but specific recommendations are really hard to come by I think I think you really have to tackle problems sort of individually sorry you know, concerning preventing infections that's one thing where it's been shown you can markedly reduce the rate of the way doctors and nurses cause infections yeah. people. at our own hospital for example the neonatal ICU which is a few years ago uh, they had uh, they were smaller than they are now they used to have a, a few cases every month of a central line infection mm. so they even if they got bigger in the new hospital they had more patients they used a central line bundle and mm. they had recently gone 400 days without a single central line yeah. infection so those things and that's just changing the way the doctors and nurses do the procedures yeah and the same thing happened in other studies in Michigan when they did that in ICUs. They went from lots of infections to nothing. Uh, the same way in the, why a lot of hospitals in the United States have a lot of staff or clinical staff or infections. They don't have a, almost a single case in the Netherlands because huh. of the way they do their infection control. So it's something that you can go from lots of potential bad outcomes to zero uh, with infection control. And that really has been shown to work in that. Yeah. But the United States hospitals the MRSA one won't do it, it's too expensive. Like everybody has to be screened when they come in the hospital for the staff. Everybody, their doctors are like really, they don't wash their hands, their team are like, you've got to go home that day, you can't work. Any doctor has, if they, they screen their noses, they, if they have that in their nose, they go home for a week, you can't work. It's like that really works, but it's too expensive for us. Right. So the systems can work to prevent infections. Yeah, and that's the tension, the recurrent tension in all of this is that we can reduce errors a lot, but, you know, unfortunately, mostly it's hard. You know, it requires measures like that that are very difficult and they cause, you know, they might cost a lot or require a whole different way of thinking about how we tackle problems. Um, you know, and, it, and it's absolutely costly and, and worth doing, but, you know, we have to figure well, out going what Going back to you, you're talking about, uh, you know, driving up the emergency department on a Saturday night and seeing the hordes of people there. How many mistakes would we? How many mistakes would we avoid, or how many would we make if we had one patient at a time? Yeah, of course. How many of our mistakes are because we picked the wrong patient mm -hmm. on the order set? How many people have ordered a test on the wrong patient from the computer yeah. in the last month? Exactly. In the last yeah. week, yeah. you know, and so they look at computer physician order entry as the panacea. Oh, right. It that's looks great. That's the easiest one to screw easily, up. You can easily pick the wrong patient. You know, the, the Swiss cheese thing you were talking about, uh, about all the different things that had to align for the for the neutropenic death that you had. Just as a, a brief sample, we had a, a, a mistransfusion of blood in the department about five years ago. Fortunately, no bad outcome. But seven independent, unusual things had to happen simultaneously in order to make that happen, any, of, any, of, any one of which would have avoided the problem. It was change of shift. It was two Hispanic ladies of the same age. They were in adjacent beds. The charge nurse who took over for change of shift, the patient was, both patients were holding in the ED waiting for patients upstairs. Neither spoke Spanish. The names were similar. The stamper thing that stamps the, the armbands was going out of ink, so it was hard to read the names. And when the nurse said, you're uh, Maria Gonzalez, aren't you? The patient said, yeah. So that's nine <laughs> they things. They thought they were getting their bed upstairs. That's nine <laughs> things. <laughs> Hell yeah. All simultaneously, so that five cc's of the wrong type blood went into somebody. Fortunately, no bad outcome. Nine different things had to happen right, all at the see, same time. And you see what you have to do then to reduce that. You have to add three more layers, right. 
which adds a huge amount of cost to the other hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of people who get blood. You know, it delays things and makes it harder. And it's a really, it's a really difficult problem. Um, but I don't want to discourage people by saying it's a difficult problem. It's also an exciting time because we have to start breaking out from our old mold of just, you know, study hard and do good and, you know, be the best you can and that'll take care of it. You got to be better than that. It's on exciting. individual end, we can, as much physicians, when we work long shifts and we're at the end of one, a difficult patient comes up at the end, especially when there's a change in every doctor and nurse, like 7 in the morning, there's a problem then in, in here. I've made, I've made my pat in the past with night shift saying, there's a patient that came in at 6.15, Looks fairly sick. I'll do a bunch of tests. Looks okay. I'll discharge it. That's the classic. Time. Yeah. From now on, I uh, on the night shift. Somebody comes at six thirty. I let the resident see him, and I don't. I never see him. I let the next doctors do. And I think some doctors haven't caught on to that. And the residents, the same thing. You should probably just do a few tests. A resident six thirty patient with abdominal pain. Order something. Don't actually see the patient and give them to the first resident arrives and let the new team start fresh. Because anytime you tell them, you, you tell it's a six. It's a, you tell them what you think, they don't really do anything different. They don't go, they don't go see start them. from scratch. They yeah. think you're probably right. I've seen that happen a lot of times when you come on at 7 in the morning and the other team uh, didn't give us the right information. They're just too tired to think. That can happen at the end of your shift, uh, whether it's the evening or the morning. So you've got to think about not trying to see the last patient when you're tired. Leave it for the next doctor. Yeah, it doesn't make you weak to do that. <laughs> it makes you intelligent. But it's hard, though. That requires culture shift. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Yeah.